Brothers and sisters, the Word of God says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the preached Word of Christ. So if we believe that, let us hear God's Word read, let us hear God's Word preached, and for that I invite you to open your Bible with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue in our series through this book. We're going to be picking up in verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6. And we're continuing to deal with that unpleasant, not really enjoyable, and not certainly not really inspirational topic of church discipline. It's not very pleasant, but of course we know it's absolutely indispensable to the health and flourishing of Christ's church. The context, we saw this last week as we covered verses 1-5, through the context is that you've got this man living in sin, open um, rebellion uh, here in 1 Corinthians 5, and, and the church was doing nothing about it. Paul tells them, this man needs to be removed from your midst. Then in hopes that his soul might be saved in the end. Uh, but now, beginning of verse 6, he turns more from the individual to the church itself and how the church is to deal with sin moving forward. Kind of the theological reasons behind why this sin um, um, should not have been tolerated and why this man should have been removed and how they are to handle those things moving forward. That's what... He begins here with in verse 6. So, 1 Corinthians 5, 6, through the end of the chapter. Um, brethren, this is, this is not man speaking, this is God speaking. Let's listen to him. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Amen. Uh, pray with me once again. Our good and gracious and glorious Father, we pray that you would gently show us our sin, that we might flee from it and find refuge in Christ. We pray that you would clearly show us our duty, that we may, in the power of the Holy Spirit, pursue your will as your children. We pray ultimately, though, that you would show us your glory and that we might be changed from one degree to another as we behold our God in the face of Jesus Christ, the face of Christ which lies on the surface of His Word. 
Hear us, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, the church in Corinth had some blatant and scandalous sin in their midst. A man was in an immoral relationship with his stepmom. It was something that even unbelievers condemned. But the worst part about it wasn't the sin itself. The worst part about it was the church did nothing about it. And they were even boastful about themselves through it all. Whether they boasted in their tolerance or whether they boasted simply in the fact that they thought that they were an amazing church. And yet they had this horrible tolerated sin among them. Paul then answers, when he hears about this, very firmly. He says, don't wait for me to get there. Don't hesitate at all. For the sake of this man's soul, for the sake of the church, let this man be removed among you. Come together and make a decision right away that this will not be tolerated. But the problem is, though, even if the church removes him, you've still got this underlying issue of why they put up with the sin in the first place. Clearly, there's more foundational issues in play here. If the foundational issues aren't dealt with, the same thing's just going to happen again in another situation. If the foundational issues aren't dealt with, they're just kicking the can down the road. That's why in this section, Paul really moves to illustrate just what a great danger that sin poses to the people of God in the church. And he wants to show them unrepentant sin is not just incompatible with the law and what God commands, but it's also incompatible with the gospel. It's incompatible with the reality of, of Christ and Him crucified and what that means for us. And brethren, this today, I think, is is where the issue really lies for us. The question might be, do we understand the danger that unrepentant sin poses to the local church and the cause of the gospel? We live in a sin world. We live in a world where sin is laughed at. Where sin is scoffed at. We live in a world where sin is something that is amusing, whether it's on TikTok, whether it's on TV, whether it's in entertainment. Sin is kind of funny. Sin is something that everybody does. We live in a world that is indifferent and casual towards sin because it's so normal to us, right? It's like Living, you know, a fish doesn't know that he's surrounded by water because everything in his world is water. Well, in this sense, this is the day and age we live in. You do your thing, I'll do mine. As long as nobody gets hurt, you know, it's all good. We live in a world where sin is excused as well. It's not my fault. I was born this way. I'm a product of my circumstances. I can't control it or it's... Lord, really, it's the woman that you gave me? Well, this is a passage that really confronts these things head on, and that's why it's so relevant to us today. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, labors in this section to show how sin destroys. And sin, in this sense, is not just, as Paul goes on to say, not just a private and personal matter. Not in the life of Christ's church. But sin 
is like a deadly plague on the loose in the midst of a crowded community. In this section, really, Paul, it's as if he burst into a crowded room and he's crying out at the top of his lungs, hey, there is a fire in the building. And if you don't come together and put it out, and if you don't come together and deal with the underlying issues of what caused that fire, everything's going to burn. So brethren, today I want you to see how this passage really challenges are casual and often superficial views of sin. And I want you to see how it really confronts as well the, the rampant individualism of our culture. And that as if what we do in private has no effect on others around us. However, with all this in mind, I do want to emphasize that far from just issuing threats and warnings, You know, the substance and thrust and motivation of this passage isn't do this or else. Really, what Paul labors to do here is show what Christ has done for us. And so that when we see that, we go and live accordingly. So once again, in this epistle, we see what it looks like to put on the mind of Christ. What it looks like to live a life of marked by humility and Christ-likeness and the pursuit of holiness. What it looks like to love Christ and to love His body, the church, and to pursue her good, her health, her purity, her flourishing. And it all comes down to the central emphasis of Christ, our Passover Lamb. He's been slain for us and for our salvation. And this both creates a new community of God's redeemed people, but it also gives us the enabling power and motivation to live accordingly to who we are as the new people, wholly redeemed by God. That's what we see in this passage today. That's how we see the gospel informs and motivates us to come together as a congregation and to pursue holiness together. Well, to consider this, uh, I want to lay it out for you in three points today. We're going to see three things. I want us to consider how Paul calls us to purify the body, to pursue who you are, and to preserve your identity. Purify, pursue, and preserve. Think first then of the call to purify the body. And this, and this kind of picks up a little bit and kind of is a little bit of carryover from last week. But again, we have this, this member living in sin. Paul calls them to remove this man from their midst. And now he turns more from just the individual to the church itself and why they were putting up with it. And so we pick up here in verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? The church did not think that this sin was really that big of a deal. And that's why Paul's kind of you know incredulous here. He's saying, do you not know? I thought you were the wise church. I thought you were the gifted church. I thought you were the exalted church. I thought you were the doctrinal church. I thought you were the one, as he will say later, repeating what they claimed about themselves, that I thought you were the church that has all knowledge. He's saying, don't you know how absurd this is? 
your boast in light of these things? Don't you know how ridiculous it is? As if the private acts of an individual don't affect the entire congregation? Don't you know how a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know how just, you know, putting up with a little sin is like distributing just a little bit of poison into the community's water supply? And that's what he means here by this statement. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But we're going to talk about this more in a moment when we get to the Passover reference. Um, But for now, this was a popular um, biblical analogy for how easily sin spreads and contaminates. You know, I was was thinking about this, though, and it occurred to me, like, you know, I'm doing research on what this phrase means, and little leaven leavens the whole lump. I've never baked bread in my life, so, um, you know, and most of you probably don't bake your own bread. You probably buy it at the store. Um, There's a little bit of work, you know, it takes for us moderns to understand this analogy. Uh, We have uh, refrigeration as well, something that they didn't have. Um, So this this isn't really likely to hit home with us. Um, But I was thinking about this, and maybe a a better modern way of illustrating it might be to speak of how easily and dangerously cancer spreads through the human body. I certainly don't want to Make light of cancer. It's a horrible evil. Most of us have lost loved ones to cancer. Cancer played a prominent role in my own dad's death uh, this past June. But I think, I think, brethren, I think in this context, it helps us grasp the seriousness of what, what Paul is saying here. I think the, the analogy of cancer is, is fitting in this respect. To sober us up a little bit. To give us a frightening picture of of what he's saying. Think of how sin spreads through the church like cancer spreads through the human body. So what if you had just a little cancer in the body? It's small and it's isolated. Maybe you didn't think it was that big of a deal. What would happen? If you had a, a malignant tumor, it's not going to stay in one place. It's going to grow. It's not going to stay confined to one area. It's going to start to invade other areas of the body around it. Now, I'm no doctor, so don't hold me to every uh, specific here, but that's how I understand it. Right? This malignant tum- tumor is going to start to invade other parts of the body. Uh, it might enter the bloodstream or the lymphatic system. And, you know, it's like getting on a highway and traveling to another part of the city. It's going to travel to other parts of the body and, and maybe the vital organs of that body. It's like, you know, traveling from one part of the city to another part of the city and invading the water supply or the agricultural and food distribution center, Right? But, but the most frightening about, aspect about this is how sometimes, even before there are major obvious symptoms, it can spread to a point where by the time you find out, it's too late. I think that illustrates the point that Paul is making here. A little sin is like a little cancer. And it may not seem like that big of a deal. And there may not be any major, obvious, life-threatening symptoms at the present moment. But a little cancer threatens the entire body. 
a little disease, even if it's in one part of the city, can easily spread and permeate, permeate the rest of the city. And so, what do you do when you have a little cancer? Well, you act quickly. You don't delay. And as we see here, you begin by removing it immediately at its source, lest it spread. You remove this, this sinner from among um, your midst, as we saw last week. And that's what Paul means here when he says, um, cleanse out the old leaven, in verse 7, that you may be a new lump. Think about that. He doesn't just say, throw out the old leaven. He says you also need to be made into a new lump of dough. In other words, you can't just stop at removing the cancer. Because in this case, the cancer is already spread. How is the cancer spread? How do we know that? Because of the sin of their tolerance and boasting and division in the church. He's saying everyone, everything, every part of the body has been infected. The cancer isn't just confined to one area. So although you need to begin by removing the tumor itself, you need to also come together and fight where it's spread to other parts of the body. Labor to purify the body. You don't just need to remove the cancer. You also need to tackle the underlying reasons for why the cancer appeared in the first place. Because otherwise it's going to pop up again. That's what I mean here when I say the call is to purify the body. See the danger that sin opposes to the church. Deal with the isolated case of sin, but also see the bigger picture, the threat to the body, and attack the underlying issues as well. Purify the body. But how do we do this? And how is the church to purify the body? Especially given the fact that we're all sinners. We all have the leaven of sin in us. We all stumble in many ways. Well, that's what Paul uh, turns to secondly to answer. To purify the body, pursue who you are. Pursue who you are. What is needed to get rid of the leaven and the cancer of sin? What is needed to purify the body and to purify the church? What you must see here is that the church and our church, this church and our church, we need to see that this purifying the body is not accomplished by the law. It's rather, it comes rather through the gospel. And, I mean, Paul certainly gives the law here, but it comes back to ultimately the gospel. Look again at uh, verse 7 and 8. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You see the the gospel logic here, for, for lack of a better term. You need to get rid of the leaven that has defiled you, but, oh, by the way, actually, you really are without leaven. It's like, wait, what? 
Paul, you are a little loopy sometimes, right? Get rid of the leaven because you already don't have any leaven? Follow his logic a little bit here. Uh, you see, before the Old Testament festival of, uh, excuse me, observance of the Passover, the Jews were called to observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is what this language points back to. When they made bread in the ancient world, uh, they often used leaven because yeast was hard to find. Um, basically, um, a piece of dough, you, you, you would make the dough, uh, but you would set aside a portion of that dough and, and just kind of lay it aside. Of course, no refrigeration back then. Um, you, would, you would set it aside and save it um, because the dough would then ferment and that would make the bread rise when it was cooked. So every week when they made bread, they would just take a, a lump of dough and instead of baking it, set it aside, and then they would use that, start from that with next week's batch um, to make bread. And they do this week after week after week. And of course, as you're doing this week after week after week, it's very easy to introduce contamination into the dough. So once a year in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, God called them to break this chain. God called them to remove leaven from their house entirely, to throw out the old dough entirely, and to start with a new batch in preparation to observe the Passover. Now, of course, there's health benefits to this in one respect, but God wasn't ultimately concerned about their health. The leaven symbolized how sin and evil defile us and contaminate us. It symbolized how, you know, sin and evil is passed down like week to week. Well, from generation to generation, from Adam onward. And it symbolized how we need cleansing from this sin and defilement. If we are going to be purified in order to worship and serve God and enter into his presence, that old lump of dough needs to be done away with entirely. You can't use that to start over. You need an entirely new creation. And that's the point of, those, of, of, that, of that feast. And that's the point that Paul makes here in the Gospel. Christ is our Passover lamb, he says in verse 7. Jesus took our sin upon himself that we might be cleansed that we might be made new, that that chain of sin leading all the way back to Adam may be broken. No longer does Adam speak for us. Now Christ speaks for us. No longer is Adam our father and our federal head. Now Christ is our federal head. And we are His children. And we are united to Him, His body, by faith. So since Christ bore our sin in His body on the tree, we have been purified. And that's Paul's point here. Pursue who you are in Christ. We've been, we just wrapped up our study of 1 Peter and our kind of tagline for uh, our study of 1 Peter is that Peter calls us to live according to our identity. That's the same thing here. We are new in Christ. We are pure in Christ. We are unleavened in Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. But even though that is who we are before God, 
right? In the courtroom of God's justice, our sin has been forgiven and we have been cleansed. And even though that is who we will be at the last day, we will be eternally and perfectly made righteous and holy without sin, without even the capacity to sin, without even the free will to sin. And here and now, we still have the old leaven uh, in our mortal bodies, that old flesh that still clings to us. So that is living in the already and the not yet. We are called at a practical level to put the sin to death, to put sin to death in light of who we are in Christ. It's because we are forgiven that we don't turn back to those sins, but that we turn joyfully and pursue Christ. It is because we are righteous before Him that we don't turn back to unrighteousness, but in gratitude we pursue righteousness in the here and now. It would be like maybe your unhealthy lifestyle caused cancer to grow in your body. And then that cancer is removed. Are you going to turn back to that unhealthy lifestyle? No. No. That's what Paul means here. Pursue who you are. Then he says, let us celebrate the festival, not with malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. He's pulling on this Old Testament imagery. And like the Passover was the event that defined who Israel was. It was, the, it, it, was the, it was the reality and the redemptive event of their exodus from Egypt. It created them as a nation. They observed it every year. And so to be an Israelite meant to live in light of the Passover. To be a Christian means to live in light of the greater Passover. Pursue who you are. But at the same time though, I want you to notice that Paul is saying this. Pursue who you are is a corporate reality. Just as much, if not more, than it is an individual reality. Let us celebrate the festival. Let us purify the body. And I think what really nails this home is that he's not just saying live in light of the gospel, you as an individual Christian, but he's also alluding to the Lord's table here. The Lord's Supper is the New Testament fulfillment of the, light, uh, of, of the Passover. So we might say it this way, on one hand, we keep the feast, as he says here, by, by perpetually putting off the leaven of sin in our lives, putting on, off sin and putting on righteousness, this continual feast of the Christian life, living in light of that. But we also keep the feast of the Lord's table by not permitting unrepentant sinners to join in. That's why he references too sincerity and truth rather than malice and evil. The Israelites were called to remove the leaven from their home in order to observe Passover. The Israelites were called to remove any, any high-handed sinners from their midst, to cut them off, to purge them, in order that they might observe the Passover as the people of God. We too, in some respect, 
are called to remove the leaven from our congregations before observing the Lord's table. That's what it means to keep the festival. So the call then is, don't allow sin a foothold in your life because of who you are in Christ. And don't allow sin a foothold in your church because of who the church is in light of Christ. Purify the body. Pursue who you are. Third and finally then, Paul then concludes by calling the church to preserve their identity. To preserve their identity. If they're called to purify the body and pursue who they are, there needs to be some clear boundaries. Who is the body? Who are those who have been made new by the work of Christ, our Passover lamb? Well, look at verses 9 through 11 again. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, Since then, you would need to go out of the world. Apparently, uh, Paul had written to the church before already. And apparently there had been some misunderstanding as to some of the things that he wrote. And so he writes to clarify here. You can probably hear some of the scoffing, maybe. People who understood him maybe think, oh, purify the body? Well, (laughs) to do that, like we're basically going to have to remove ourselves from from life and reality and culture. You know, maybe they thought in some respect that you know, Paul was a Jew, and so he's writing to a bunch of Gentiles. Maybe he, you know, they thought, well, you know, it's no secret that Jews believed even sharing a meal with Gentiles would make them ritualistically unclean, or even to walk in the marketplace would make them unclean. So maybe they're, you know, they had thought, is this what Paul means? Is this some sort of Jewish separatism here? And how's that going to happen when we live in Gentile world? That's why Paul writes to clarify these things. And what he writes essentially to say is the same thing that Jesus taught when he said, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. He says, I didn't at all mean that you can't associate with the sexually immoral people of this world. To associate literally means to mingle with or to be mixed up in. That's what the word uh, really gets at. uh, Just like it sounds, uh, to have uh, interaction with them in a social setting or to to have um, these types of sinners and unbelievers as neighbors or colleagues or, or even friends or to do business with them. And in this sense, Paul is saying, you know, church, don't isolate yourself. The church isn't called to build high walls and to cut themselves off from the unbelieving world, to live the, um, you know, life as 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 a nun or as a monk in a monastery. Paul is saying, look, whether they're sexually immoral or greedy or swindlers or even idolaters, you can't escape the world. Now, There are some associations with unbelievers that Scripture warns us about, even later in this letter. Um, Without a doubt, we ought to be very careful how close we get with unbelievers who are characterized by these sins. We know that bad company corrupts good morals. But at the end of the day, ultimately, the world is our mission field. 
Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners because he loved them and pursued them that they might come to a knowledge of the truth. So you can't escape the world. And and even if you try to escape the world, you you might be running away from the Great Commission like, like Jonah. No, instead of, you know, living this ascetic life, look at verse 11. What am I writing to you about? I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, a drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Bears the name of a brother. Someone who claims and professes to be a Christian. Someone who is, might be a part of the church, and yet they remain in unrepented sin. There's two things particularly um, about this list that Paul gives here that I think is noteworthy. Uh, the first is that they all come from the book of Deuteronomy. That's why we read that section earlier. Uh, in like manner, these very same sins, Israel was called to purge them from their midst. Um, And just as we saw last week, this section is a really clear reminder that the Old Testament law continues to hold real authority over the Christian life, even if that law isn't specifically repeated in the New Testament. The Old Testament moral law, that is. There's no New Testament law that says you can't marry your stepmother, but there is in the Old Testament. And that's what Paul appeals to here. But the second thing that's striking about this list of things that he, that, that he details here is just how, how typical of Corinth it was. This, this describes the typical Corinthian citizen to a T. Sexual immorality refers to any and all sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant. Greed and swindler carry connotations of defrauding someone. That you, so that you gain. Taking advantage someone, of someone in business or not being honest with them in business or not being straightforward with them in life. Idolatry goes hand in hand with sexual immorality and covetousness. Uh, Colossians 3.5 Sexual immorality um, and covetousness are called idolatry. It's the worship of false gods. A reviler is someone who is typically abusive and cruel and hateful towards others, those who stir up division and strife, especially within the church. Drunkenness refers not to the drinking of alcohol itself, but to uh, which was inescapable in that world. Um, wine was a staple of the diet there. Uh, it refers to the sinful behavior that follows when, son, when someone drinks too much. A loss of self-control, a loose tongue, loose morals, an angry drunk, someone who drinks and gets sinfully depressed. This is drunkenness. And these are things that describe what Corinth was famous for. So Paul is saying, look, I'm not telling you to, to move outside the city. I'm not telling you to, to buy a plot of land and build a compound. I'm not telling you to try to escape culture. I'm not trying to tell you to avoid the very people that you have been called to love and witness to. Instead, I am calling you to avoid those who claim to be a Christian and yet they live unrepentantly in these lifestyles. 
This is someone who claims to be a Christian and yet they sleep with or live with their boyfriend or girlfriend. This is someone who claims to be a Christian and yet they practice or identify themselves as a homosexual. This is someone who claims to be a Christian and yet they won't bat an eyelash about cheating people or being deceptive, maybe to try to make an extra buck or take advantage of someone financially. This is someone who claims to be a Christian, yet they constantly stir up strife and division, particularly in the church. This is someone who claims to be a Christian, and yet they live for the bottle. And they carouse. And they frequently drink too much, and they fall into sin because of their alcohol consumption. Paul is saying, don't associate with these people. Don't even eat with such a one. This has caused no small controversy in the church. What do you mean I can't even eat with someone like this? Does this mean that we entirely shun them? Does this mean that we cut them off? That we don't even speak to them? Does this forbid us from having even a private meal with someone who lives like this? Well, I believe that Paul is calling for wisdom and caution here. Uh, in this phrase. Uh, To not even eat with someone, uh, first and foremost, it clearly implies the Lord's Supper. That's the context. Don't share the table of the Lord with unrepentant sinners. And that's one reason why we guard the table here at CRBC. It's our attempt to obey this commandment as best as possible. But I also believe it refers to things like, in our day, a fellowship meal. Meals that are the specific gathering of the church. Meals that are specific gathering of Christians as, in a sense, an active community, Christian community. And the point is that the identity of the church must be preserved. In other words, we are in no way to recognize or give the impression that such sinners are Christians. Or that we receive them as Christians. Or that we approve of their lifestyle. There needs to be a clear distinction between the church and the world. Otherwise you have no church. Otherwise the gospel is compromised. And the witness of the church is compromised. Oh, he's a Christian and he lives like this? No. Such dishonors the name of God. And it hinders the, the advancement of the gospel. So so does this forbid even private meals with such people? I think that's one way of reading it. In many cases, maybe yes. In one part, just because of how easily sin can spread that way. It's far more dangerous to, to associate with a Christian who is sinning. Because you open yourself up to temptation. Because them being a Christian and living like, like that convinces us, well, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe it's no big deal. Maybe I could do that too. It's a lot easier when it's an unbeliever. You know where they stand. You know their lifestyle isn't lived to God. And so you're protected more in that sense. That's why it is dangerous to associate with a brother, with a professing Christian who lives in sin. But whether or not this forbids any and every private meal or not, the main point is simply that we are not to recognize or receive them as Christians in any interaction we have with them, which should continue in some respect, but any interaction we have with them should be in order to call them to repentance. 
Because sin spreads like cancer. You better be careful at how close you get to someone who is infected, lest you yourself become infected and the rest of the body come, become infected. But to bring this all to a conclusion, this call to preserve the identity of the body, it's really um, uh, summed up in verses 12 and 13. Look there again. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. It is not our job to judge unbelievers who do not profess to live according to, to God's commandments, who don't even know God's commandments or know the Lord in order to live that way. They are slaves to sin until the gospel message comes to free them by the power of the Holy Spirit into new life. And so it's not our job. God is their judge. We are not to impose house rules of the church upon the outside world. That's what Paul is saying here. God doesn't call us to walk in accordance with His gospel, with His word until we receive the gospel. We even see this in the Ten Commandments. It's, hey, after I've delivered you, now do this. This is also another passage where I believe that um, the New Testament does not impose upon us or the church to um, take the standards of the gospel or the church and impose them on society or the state around us. The church is the church and the state is the state. These are two kingdoms that God keeps separate in some respect. Judge those in your midst. Follow God's commandments in your midst. God will judge and take care outside of that. The church and the world are distinct. And we leave those things to the judgment of God. And so in that respect, we don't hand them over to Satan, as we saw last week. We don't purge them um, from among us as pronouncing judgment upon them. We don't separate ourselves and refuse to eat with them as unbelievers. God takes care of judging them. He calls us to pay attention to clean our own house in this respect. And brethren, we have then the duty, and not just the duty, but the right then to, and responsibility to pass judgment on one another. I, I hope you're okay with that. Remember what I said earlier, this attacks our modern individualism? They can tell me what to do. I determine what the Christian life is like. I determine how I should live, how I should go. I determine whether what I'm doing is sin or not. Well, no, the church does together. And we are called to listen to the voice of the church because the church has the right and the authority and the responsibility to judge you. As horrible as that can sound. Not in a personal sense, me judging you. Not in a superficial sense, without confirming all the facts. Not in a hateful or cruel sense, we do in order to show compassion and restore them. Not in a legalistic sense, not according to our own personal preferences or convictions that aren't found clearly derived from God's Word. But we are called to judge each other in a corporate sense as they church together when all the, the facts are confirmed, when in a loving, restorative sense, and in a biblical sense based upon the Word of God. Because this is how 
our identity is preserved. This is how the body is purified. This is how we become who we are. This is how we take seriously the danger that sin poses to the life of the body. This is how we pursue the mind of Christ. This is how it enables us to, to, to preserve the witness of the church that unbelievers might see and be brought to repentance. And brethren, none of this is easy. It's easy to judge the world. Right? The whole world's going to hell. Look at the guy in the White House. Look at that singer on TV. Look at that movie star. They're so wicked. They're so, they're so evil. They're so corrupt. It's easy to judge the world. At the same time, it's hard to judge the church. It feels unloving at times. It feels too harsh. We don't want to be seen as judgmental. We want to be seen as, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> as tolerant. But this is why we need the mind of Christ and the spirit of Christ. To come together as a church and, and purify and pursue and preserve. And brethren, just to bring this all back to where we began, all of this is informed not ultimately by the law, but by the gospel. The law plays a role. It's indispensable. But the motivation, the enabling, and the hope in the Spirit all flow out of Christ and Him crucified. Because think about it, and, and I'll, leave you, I'll leave you with this. Only with a clear view of Christ and Him crucified will we ever see sin for as dangerous and as evil as it really is. It took the death of the God-man to unleaven us, as it were. That's how serious sin is. Only with a clear view of the Gospel will we be able to see who we are ultimately so that we might pursue who we, uh, uh, pursue who we are in Him. Only with a clear view of the Gospel will we see our distinct identity as the people of God and seek to preserve that for the witness of God and the advancement of the Gospel. Yeah, we live in a day where, you know, it's my body and it's my choice. We live in a day where the constant call is pursue your authentic self, be true to who you are, nobody can put you in a box. Nobody can define who you are or who you must become. But Christ comes to us in the Gospel and He says, you say in your sin, my body, my choice. I say, this is my body given for you. This is who you are ultimately. You are not your own. And this is the most glorious and the most inspirational, and the most empowering, and the most hopeful, and the most assuring news of all. And this is the love of Christ that compels us to put on the mind of Christ. To love people, yes, but to love Christ and His body even more. And may God give us the grace, the wisdom, and the mercy even to walk according to what He's called to us to in this passage. Let's pray.